We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Here with me today is... It's Ken! I've now known Jared for 30 years by my count. <laughs> God, is it, is it 30? I think it's 30. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure you're in second grade when you're nine. Um <laughs> Yeah. That's scary, huh? So uh yeah, we've known each other longer than most of you have been playing role-playing games. So alive. <laughs> yeah, some of that too. Uh there's a little bit of group thing going on here at this point. We have grown together and apart in a wide variety of ways over the years. There are certain sen- sensibilities we share about how these things should work. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure we necessarily like the same things, but we have a lot of fairly similar ideas about why things work or don't. I don't think you have nearly the enthusiasm I do for stuff like, uh, you know, early Pulp Fiction and things like that, and that's fine. I, I do, I do still have your Clockwork Vampire. Yeah, that thing's book. so bad. It's like, <laughs> what if a guy with no talent tried to write like a dude in the twenties? We won't name the book. That would be unfair. And also, it's not that he has no talent, but like, maybe I should say with no good ideas. I don't even know. I I feel like I'm being harsher than I need to be. I was very entertained reading it. Like, it really flows, but it's not good. <laughs> There's a reason the phrase "beautiful train wreck" exists. I think sometimes what ends up happening is stuff gets published that isn't ready to be. And I say published, I also mean aired filmed <laughs> well i mean that that's a factor but also they can't all be home runs right no sometimes you finish it and it just isn't very good one of the most salient lessons back from my days of teaching composition in college to students was how much they had to write to get to the good version yeah it's not an exercise i'm that interested most of the time but i understand that the result is basically as a writer you have what amounts to a batting average for whether you wrote something good or not True. it also helps that i've read a, a ton of you know really prolific guys like stephen king and um r.a salvatore like quality is not just a function of trying to get everything right every time say right yep dick uh richard matheson uh lots of guys who have done just a really huge volume of writing when you really look at it not everything they wrote was good. You know, it's interesting. It's kind of my impression of the Eternals, too, were having time on an air flight back home to watch it. I sat and said, this scene right here is pretty good. Well, so this is the thing you have to understand about the Eternals. The Eternals, not the movie, but the characters, sure. were basically created as a bone thrown to Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which means that they are very much of Kirby, and without meaning any disrespect to him as an illustrator, Writing-wise, he did his best work with a partner every time. <laughs> I remember speaking to you during an interview one of the writers for the Pirates of the Caribbean mm-hmm. movies, and he said that for him, the team was the ideal foundation because it allowed someone else to respond before he had to present it to an audience or committee, investors, and hear and see how his work came across to someone else once. So there's that. And the other part was 
sometimes the other person's ideas, he used the word sometimes in quotations, of course, were better. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing, I think, when you're creating on your own to swallow, that sometimes the feedback you get is better than what your initial notes had down as the thing. Well, the other thing is, even if you're not bringing someone else in, coming back to an idea later, you pretty much always don't recognize what your thought process was while you were writing it. No, you just see the result. Yeah, and you can often go, well, okay, that's pretty good, but what if I did this, that, and the other? But you actually have to put it aside for a while. So this is a mild aside, but I was struggling with the revisions on the second chapter of the book. And the reason I was struggling is that in my initial notes, they were written as if I were describing pages on a screenplay. So Mm -hmm. bracketed out accordingly. And naturally trying to shove that shape into a novel form was a non-starter. So I texted Stephen, Dave's brother, and he, in his usual fashion, said, well, why not go avant-garde? Just chapter two screenplay. And I sat for a moment and said, you know what? Even if it doesn't make it to the final draft. Right. At at least it'll give you a different way of looking at it. Sure. At least let me break out the chapter as screenplay and see if it lets me get out of my own way enough to describe what's happening. And sure enough, it did. And I finally, to your point, came around and there was this we'll call it a monologue at the beginning, which works as a monologue, but visually, because screenplay still is a visual medium, you need to have something going on while a person is talking on the screen. Well, you just rent a little theater in Soho and put out a chair and one spotlight and, you know. And then, you know, subtitle at one person show. Right. And then then somebody comes out there and does acting for 20 minutes and you know you're, you're off to the races right that's how these things work but it's kind of hard to put that in the middle of a book i saw someone do this with apocalypse now well i mean the kurtz monologue is great so why wouldn't you no it wasn't just the kurtz monologue oh did they try <laughs> to do the whole thing because that's different <laughs> yes. yeah the kurtz monologue in apocalypse now is like what everybody should aspire to a distillation of what their villains are about yeah it's a great one the, the the one I sent you about the detour hallucinations a while back was also a great one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the first thing I noticed looking at your sheet here, <laughs> let's go on that. I'm just gonna just hard write into the into the into the sheet. Okay, almost all of these ideas have, and I'm sure this is on purpose, a fairly significant amount to do with light. Yeah. So one of the things that, particularly as I look at these in juxtaposition against each other. With one group, they wanted specifically a world lit only by bioluminescence. And then, of course, that started defining all the other choices as to what existed in the world and how. Okay, so that makes absolutely no scientific sense, but we're not going to go there. Go on. And that's where we ended up with weirdnesses like vampires living underground and then one character playing a vampire, at least as it existed in this world, who was blind but could somehow make little bits of light and obviously couldn't tell, but knew people's reactions to bringing this horror back into existence. The other game we ran, which I think we've called, or the note here starts with our better better angels, again touched upon the ideas that the characters weren't necessarily human, but something left behind after them. The world was definitely visible as ours is, but it had that, it shared that same kind of, uh, I suppose, cargo cult nature of discovering things that were still the same. They encountered a dragon in game that was a monorail. Okay. And fought it, not knowing what it was. It was just big and scary and horrible and electrocuted them because they got in its way. That was a poor choice. You know, the mentality there, and I think this is an important part. Yes, I feel I feel like the dichotomy between white, light and dark here is important. But there's also in all the games, the sense of kind of innocence about the world around them. 
Yes, which I don't really mesh well with, but that's okay. <laughs> well, see, that, this gets back to my point about the writing team, because innocence in a narrative does not work without juxtaposition. I got your juxtaposition right here. <laughs> you really do. But I, I feel like, for me, it was kind of a creative challenge, because you know where I'm inclined to take the story. I want to undercut it with the awful, the weird, the surreal. But I, I wanted to live up to the player's request in one game with our better angels to give them a village in which they were children raised by adults. And they were slowly beginning to adventure in the world around them with their Nana Golem, Tut-Tut, and who was named that because, of course, Tut-Tut-Tut did everything they wanted to do. So, yeah, they, they wanted to go to Burning Knife Mountain or the Marsh's Shining Lights or the Fields of the Hidden Night and collect the stuff needed to make grapes during the Wine Press Festival and stuff like that. But the world was obviously kind of weird and terrifying outside of the village walls. And in the bioluminescence-themed idea or the game that we ran a few sessions on they managed to get together and find each other only to then discover this crashing plane which was being piloted by a bunch of archaeological cultists who as the players decided in this in this post-apocalyptic world archaeologists were effectively little cargo cultists who thought they could become real norse dragons by hoarding old treasure and I sat okay. there and went, <laughs> that was my reaction. Of, <laughs> uh, those are some hard notes out of Nibelung Lead to live up to, but that's fine. <laughs> Nibelung Lead, I'm not actually sure how you pronounce it. That, that's basically what happens with uh, Regin in that, isn't it? Yeah. I, I sat there for a moment and said, okay, I invited them to add truths to the world. These have been given. These are established. They, they, one of the players was a dragon and she was full of light, except she was like a baby version of that. So she took umbrage of something trying to take up her status in the world and they decided to bring down the evil archaeologist and out of the wreckage of that emerged this lamp which we were going to discover what was inside of but i think thematically if we're talking truths of the world the dichotomy between light and dark this innocent wonder at the things that around them they're discovering and i think is a challenge to me this came out of, particularly when Stephen, Dave, and I ran a version of this, too. Stephen specifically wanted JoJo vampires, but as, like, you know... There's only, like, a handful of vampires in that whole series. The only one that matters is Dio. I don't understand JoJo vampires particularly, but fine. I think Go fundamentally he, mean, he means, like, Dio-inspired. So if you could, for the audience at home who has not enjoyed... Dio the, has charisma. You cannot touch Dio. Dio's influence is vast and his shadow is long. You can't have, like, lots of Dios. That doesn't work. So I think groupies might be the wrong word, but effectively... Well, so, okay, what's going on right now? All right, in the JoJo manga, uh -huh. is that finally, after years, he has farmed out the characters from Diamond is Unbreakable to other writers. Okay. Okay. Diamond is Unbreakable for those who don't know, and I'm going to check my references live here. Hold on, because I believe I'm on the right one. Actually, I know I'm on the right one. I just might not be on the only right one. All right. Diamond is Unbreakable is the one with Josuke. So actually, I'm still right, but it's the guys from. It's the second dark of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure that he is farming out the characters from. Hold on, I'm going to get it right. So it's Diamond is Unbreakable because he's actually using Josuke in it, right? And also, is it Stardust Crusaders? I think it's Stardust Crusaders is, is mainly it. What I will do to pad time, meanwhile, is throw in kind of the third seed that emerged in the Better Angels game. This was for context. Dave and Pablo had 
Okay, yeah. It is Stardust Crusaders. All right. So except that's the one is that the one with the pillar men? No, no pillar men there. Great. Okay, so we're on the right track. Okay, so Stardust Crusaders had a huge cast. It's got JoJo, it's got Paul Nareff, it's got but it's also got a bunch of villains. Okay. So what he's done is he's farmed out a bunch of the villains from that to other writers. So now there's a whole horse Josuke Joestar uh, team up going on in one of these. So I think I think what Stephen was really asking here was for here was vampires who were basically fashion models being fame and tech obsessed. Okay, but I mean that's like meaning no disrespect. One of the directions it's been pretty popular to take vampires in media for the last twenty years. I agreed, and that's fine, right? But like you don't have to go to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure for that. You can go to Anne Rice for that. I know it, it's also where the Suki Stackhouse I think series ended up. Uh, for all I know, I haven't read any of it. That, that, I'll buy it, though. There's even, like, Shades of Twilight there. Yeah. There, there, were, there was the one adapted into uh, True Blood. I couldn't think of the name. True Blood. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So the the third kind of pivotal truth of the world here, which I think will help us find the twist on what was asked for regarding vampires, because there's some other truths on vampires later on I'll bring up in a moment. A little context. Dave and Pablo wanted to invite their now wives to play one of these games with us. And that's always an interesting endeavor. Sometimes you share hobbies with your spouses. Sometimes you realize you shouldn't because they like you having fun with them, but don't necessarily have fun with them. And that's fine. But both their wives had expressed, Chelsea and Galen had expressed interest. So we wanted to create a game, even if it was a mini series, that would give them an opportunity to play in the hobby, but also not immediately terrify them with the ways we sometimes take the games. And we decided... And that's an exercise in self-control. That's not a setting function. No. Uh, part of this was a self-limitation. Part of this was a, all right, a creative challenge. And in talking with Pablo and Dave, we kind of looked back to Twain's The Mysterious Stranger, where effectively you had a group of innocents stumble upon the devil. And the point is the devil is pre-human morals and ethics. Its understanding of existence, according to Twain, is not ours. So it is a mysterious stranger that walks them through all these fantastic journeys and then proceeds to casually murder or obliterate or otherwise remake the world according to their whims or its own interest. And is confused as to why they're horrified when the fun house falls apart. Mm. Because in that sense, weren't we just all, weren't we just in the creating and iterating of this world and the leaving wreck and ruin behind of whatever lived there in that time? just having fun. And they wanted Pablo in particular, as he is his want, he wanted some kind of deep twist to the world where it wasn't evil or dark per se, but there was a mentality behind the way things are that is alien to the things that live on it. So there's a possibility for horror, although it's really in the hands of the players to decide whether they are delighted or horrified by what emerges from this. And I think I kind of wanted to to not have a narr- narrative that was, on the whole, dark, if that makes sense. Uh, our longest-running series, although it had a lot of funny and bright moments, was a fundamentally dark world. Sure. Thematically, not just visually. All right. I mean, it can be nice to go to Oz when you've been hanging around in pretty much any other fantasy setting. I get it. And even Oz is not all like, you know, candy and you know, moonbeams, but like, no. it, it's overall a happier setting in a lot of ways. Really not if you go to the later books. Uh, even if you go to the later books, they vary. So they, you go to some really dark corners of Oz and a couple of them, but like, not everyone. One of them actually had cited Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts as kind of a, a hopeful reference point. 
Yeah, or the German guy who wrote the uh, Rumo books is pretty good for that yeah, kind of thing. You. Or, um, I mean, you, you can find fantasy settings that are not inherently depressing. Even Raymond Feist, although he goes to some fairly dark places occasionally, is not really trying to write something that is meant to be grim. It's just that bad stuff happens. Yeah, and I think that was kind of the interesting challenge here. Could we create a world or a setting that had these major truths and then some of the small ones and allowed on the whole for stories to come out light. Even Michael Moorcock, depending on which facet of the eternal champion he's writing, goes from really unbelievably dark to actually sort of positive. I once liked a cupcake. Well, like Elric is, you know, sort of peak dark for Lumley, <laughs> to be honest. Okay. The light there is not from Elric. Uh, th there isn't really any. I mean, it, El Elric has it. El Elric's in a bad situation to begin with, and everything he does to try to forward his own agenda tends to end in disaster sure. um, for everyone around him, but not necessarily for him. It's very dark. Uh, whereas uh, the Corum books are still, you know, pretty dark, but like Corum can succeed at things in them. Unlike Elric, who only appears to succeed before the hammer drops most of the time. And I think particularly if you're building a, was it you I was talking to this about this other day? Maybe it was Jay. Uh, it might have been Jay, because we were talking about another series that both of us found too bleak to have continued reading. Oh. And it, I'll have to go to the notes, but it came down to the... There's a little bird on my shoulder that's telling me that's a challenge, but I'm going to try not to listen to it. <laughs> Part of my brain is going, I shouldn't tell you if I remember, because then you'll indulge in it. I, I will read it, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's going to happen. But I think it, you know, it even heralds, it, hark it harkens back to our conversation about the early seasons or books of the magicians, where... I kept on wanting a hope spot to... It would have been okay if something went right for them every once in a while. It would yeah. like probably have been an improvement to the story. Even if overall I understand that it's supposed to be an inversion, but like, I, you know, there's in, inverting and then there's insisting. When you reach the point of no exit, I start, it's, it's not fun for you anymore to experience even the misery because there's no relief. And I, I guess the question was, even if the world itself is dark and by all luminescence, they're only light. Mm -hmm. How can we structure this in a way that dark is the accent and not the, the highlight? Well, and the other thing that happens is when somebody is insisting on dark, right? The, the reader, the viewer, whatever you are, at some point finds themselves in the position of going, why can't you just make a good decision for once <laughs> at, at, at the characters? Because it virtually always involves some level of complicity on the part of the characters that things stay as bad as they are. You, you've heard my grumblings on our threads online about a series I finished recently that went that way. Mm -hmm. And as much as it was based on real-life circumstances in our own world that went that way, I sat there watching the character actively destroy any hope that existed. It's just, why can't you make a good decision just one time? See how that goes for you, right? A, a good writer will create a, a situation where they make the good decision and maybe it doesn't work out like they wanted or whatever, but so, there, there are a number of series where you, you sort of get the impression that nobody's allowed to succeed just by the laws of what's going on. It's frustrating. I... Yeah, I've I've read them or watched them where I go, oh, I'm I'm amazed you are still alive mm -hmm. because the story should have killed you by now, not because you deserved it, just because. Like really, though, how did you get through that? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and obviously, in a collaborative storytelling game, there's always those idiot moments where you, as kind of the narrator or the GM or however you want to title it, sit back and go, oh, you know, obviously, I could tilt things further, but right, 
is that going to be what's most fun here? Mm-hmm. Do I want to? And is that going to be what's most fun? And I think for me, it was this, this kind of approach was an interesting challenge because it pushes against my natural inclinations of, okay, yeah, let's go terrible. Let's see what, let's see what happens. Or if not go terrible, then not punish them for being terrible. Right. Okay. So setting then back in, in light of all of that, you don't want a situation where it's always doomed and you do want to play with themes of light and dark. That's what we got so far. Themes of light and dark. I, I do think, I think one thing we need to establish quickly here as a truth of the world, are we talking about two different places within the same world or are we talking about like inside and outside of the same thing? So is it light on one side, internally, dark, externally, you know, what's one of those we should settle on. So we have a physical space we're we're basing everything on. I think that might be a better second question. Okay. I think the first question is, do you want this to be a setting that works across multiple styles of game? Or do you want this to be used for a particular game that you want to run for a while? That is an interesting question. I've chewed over both of these, logistically and realistically. I You're building it out of like five different games, but are you trying to attempt synthesis here or what? I think I don't have an answer to this yet, so we need to figure out one, because I personally do not have the time to run something off of anything right now. So my preference would be to give us a... Well, would be A, to have something we can dip into occasionally as quick sessions or to have a baseline setting that different folks can pull from to run a thing. Okay. So what you want there is something that is fairly broad. It's kind of like, I I know you don't follow Critical Role and I've only done it tangentially, but kind of like how their base world emerged and they tell a number of different things in it. But Right. But see, that's okay. So the thing I, I don't know critical role well, but fundamentally they tell fan, they tell heroic fantasy stories in a heroic fantasy world. Right. Like they, they said a genre, a tale and a setting. You can see some examples of where that does and doesn't work in virtually every setting that's ever been published for D&D mm-hmm. and in Pathfinder, where you, between different regions, the flavor of the game feels wildly different. Yes, and I think part of this too stems from my earlier conversations with you on the 5e game we're running, where it's clear we're only dipping our toes in the system as far as how we play it. Yeah, which is not a sin, by the way, but like... But it does leave you to wonder, lead you to wonder if there couldn't be a better engine to run that same story. I in. suspect there is definitely a better engine to run your D&D story in, but that's I do okay. Too. I I'm do too. pretty sure it's based on the Fate engine as well, but I don't know that I want to, you know, defend that hill. I just think it may be. I've poked around fellowship or similars, and I think one of them could work. But I, I, I think it's why I'm looking at something that is system agnostic. See, I get that, but what that that creates a problem. I know because some systems push for a certain kind of story. Well, that, but also a setting that is over-tooled. Yes, is going to be hard to use for some systems. It can go either way. So here's my thought then: Why don't we? And this won't be comprehensive or exhaustive, I should say. But why don't we pick like a handful? Why don't we pick a handful of systems and say these will be the likeliest to run stories in this setting, and let that dictate what follows? Okay. Well, fundamentally, unless you guys deviate a long way from your path overall, okay, and that's not to say that none of you has ever gone this way. You're probably not going to want to want to run a heavy mechanics game here. No, I feel like this is a rules light setting. Right. So you can rule out Dungeons and Dragons, which is actually currently only medium mechanics, but that's okay. 
You can rule out Lancer, which you should anyway, because if you run Lancer outside of its its setting, I don't know what you're doing. That feels like a lot of work to do something that it's already doing. It would be a lot of work, but not necessarily uninteresting. Boy, it would be a lot of work. Yeah, and that's that's the other reason, right? I don't my I do want to keep up that keep to that that objective of easy to jump into. Right. You're not running Knights Black Agents, but are you running investigative games here? I think there's a possibility for it. You could you could because that some... would be kind of a new thing for you or Dave as GMs. You don't really do that. I've, I'm the only one I know out of our circle who like dabbles in that area, and I don't actually do it that well. I think it would be fun to do the, to actually play the archaeological cult. Okay, or, or you know, uh, for that matter, you could run the game with the kids from the village exploring as an investigation game, sure, not as a um, fairy tale game, which it sounds like was more or less the genre you were in. It was fairy tale to begin with. To be fair, when we ran Dungeon World in the long running game, that was largely exploration with some investigation. Right. Yeah, exploration and investigation aren't the same thing mechanically. No, particularly not in some systems. But they, right, which doesn't mean they can't coexist, but they're not the same thing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I do think, I do think because so much of the world is discoverable. So, for instance, in say like the fellowship uh, system, there are different frameworks that are oppositional to the players. You have the Overlord, which is the classic one. You have the Empire, which is we all know which the is Empire. sort of the Overlord, but less you know one single face on it. It's decentral. The Overlord decentralized. You take you have to topple them all or enough to get the resistance going. Right. Sure. There's I think the one that would work best for this, which is called the Horizon, where the world is discoverable. You all have your own reasons for doing so. There's a vehicle or a means you acquire to travel about it. Okay, so you you're you're looking at I can't think of the name. There was a game that was very much about that kind of thing. Yeah. Um it was Japanese, I think. Came out a few years ago. Ryutama. Ryutama. That's it. Yep. That's the one I'm thinking of. I have looked at that as a possibility. It's a little too loose. Loose one and also tabletop, actual tabletop dependent. Okay. We ran a couple I have the rules. We ran a couple. I think it's adaptable. I think the, the struggle with Ryutama is that the focus there specifically is on the most mundane possibilities, which is an interesting story to tell. It can be, it can but that's be. not really where you're interested in going here. So that's fine. I think you could run Ryutama in this. I don't know if it's worth, like you, you could be the weird cargo cult tradesperson and your, your caravan through the world of wonders is the game. I could see that. That could be a fun game. Okay, so, and we want, apparently, uh, vampires, dragons, and lights. I, I feel like there is a... Why vampires? I mean, I, I, know, I know you said that we're, we're working on the, you know, Twilight model, basically, here. But, like, uh, fundamentally, that model blurs really hard into elves and fairies and that kind of thing yeah. after a while. I'm looking at the notes. Okay, so further down... Vampires hide, keep and play with all that's been left behind might be what remains of those who were once the spirits of the world or what it was like. I think the reason they use the word vampires is that, to your point, it's a shortcut or shorthand yeah, for sure. a larger category of tropes that they wanted to play with. Mm-hmm. So, I, for instance, none of them really seemed all that inclined to, you know, consume the flesh or being of no others. castles, no no blood sucking, none of that. Just you know, vampires. I, I think one of them did use the remnant playbook from Fellowship, which can be vampirish in one form. Mm-hmm. It has a move called Feed on Pain, so you know. I, I think it was more they wanted vampires are essentially weird recluses. 
who are tied to a world that is not like the one around them. Okay, so now now you've got something I can grab hold of there. What, the moment I said weird recluse? Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> but also, I'm thinking of games like Golgotha and um, Rhapsody of Blood, which is one of the legacy Life Among the Ruins uh, hacks I've seen, which is meant to bring it closer to Castlevania. Sure. And the Nightmares Underneath, where... The spaces you're going into, although in Golgotha it's slightly differently conceived, Mm -hmm. the spaces you're going into are the product of some particular entity's imagination. And in the case of Nightmares Underneath, it's fears, right? And, you know, whatever's bothering them. In the case of Rhapsody of Blood, what happens is because it's a generational game, every generation somebody new is in charge of the the castle, and Mm -hmm. the castle changes to reflect that Per that character's issues. Okay. Oh, okay. I'm just going to put in a bookmark here. I think this is a tag to Dave when he listens to it too. This could be a great, that system there would be a great one for the arc ship generation note uh, idea we had. We'd come up with another premise where it's an arc ship where generations wake up and then have to find the notes left behind of the others. In the yeah. Kind of the, you could, you could, you should look at Legacy Life Among the Ruins for that, and Rhapsody okay. of Blood particularly for trying to adapt like changes in the ship. If you're at a um, like high sci-fi, we'll call it level of things can happen inside a spaceship. I read a fairly bad book along those lines not too long ago about a um, generation ship that had completely fallen apart, sure, and people waking up inside it and trying to figure out what in the world had happened, basically. Uh, and it was it was not a not the most successful book, but you know it had ideas. Uh, anyway, the the point is you could draw out of that game and that sort of little galaxy of stuff some pretty good ideas for changes inside a ship that the next generation of people might wake up to. So I think like that kind of engine can, could let's not call them vampires, we'll call them recluses or hermits within the recluse enclave. You could play that kind of game where for whatever reason. They have, and I think maybe this is partly where the vampires keyed into as well, where there's long periods of dormancy tied with moments of wakefulness. And this might dig back to a setting idea Dave and I had a way back a while ago talking about like a Mayfly December world, where there was the stuff that happened a lot and then the things that only periodically returned. Okay, so to finish my thought for a minute ago, Golgotha is a sci-fi game, and it's a sci-fi dungeon crawling game where the point of the game is that aliens built all the dungeons so they don't necessarily make sense to human beings. Right. In this case, the aliens would be whatever was in the world before you. Right. Uh, It's a a precursor species or speciesism. Nobody's really sure. Mm -hmm. But they have a lot of cool stuff, so people want it. (laughs) that's That's the theme of that game. I think perhaps with your setting, what you want to do is build a setting where most people are if not outside of light in the literal sense, they're not in one of these areas that's been shaped by one of these weird recluse anchor type of people. I think this leads to our second question then of what the world itself is actually like. Because if, for instance, light is sourced only in one particular place, uh, inverse world, for example, suggests a world where the sun or this is the core of the world and the surface is perpetually dark. If it was something like that, then... The rarest things are obviously whatever's on the surface and night. If night and dark both exist potentially on the surface, then there's something keeping it to one side, keeping them apart effectively, that it's always night here and always light, 
day there. Well, I'm going to go to a place that I have shown admirable restraint and not going to yet. <laughs> Very well. You, you've, you've earned your moment. You definitely saw this coming. I did. Bring in mist. Yeah. Bring in visibility. All right. As a veteran Ravenloft GM, as a guy who is currently try- thinking about running City of Mist, like bring in not just light and dark, but other things that obscure them one way or another. So this this goes to something that emerged during your Better Angels game. Mm-hmm. A, a location I rolled up was called the Shifting Towers. And it's not something they could reach at all because it was a way off in the distance. And just the, the things rolled were unnatural, featured, divine, watched place, corrupt and tied to wisdom. And then the description was a silhouette of towers, the light they reflect that are never that's never quite the same, but always. And the immediate thing that happened, of course, when this was described, is the character said, I want to go there. Why wouldn't they? It's the impossible place at the on the That's the kind of thing that characters tend to want to chase. Makes sense. Right. It, it's you know, whatever is on the other side of Bifrost, the Rainbow Ridge. It's the right. it's the other side of the world. So I think there's that as you're describing, it's not necessarily missed per se as obscured Ravenloft setting, but it is at past a certain point night. Yeah, and just my point really more is that there should be complicating factors, right? Sure. It's not necessarily that you need to crib from Ravenloft directly, but like right. You know, the mountain's over there. Okay, good, great. But also, uh, you know, between you and the mountain, there's a region where, you you know, they used fog and Genshin Impact to some effect anyway, several times lately, right? Uh, you don't have to go to fog. It could be currents in the water. It could be that you can't go there in a straight line. I, I, I don't know? have to have a mascot character telling you it's too dangerous to go further. Oh, you really don't need that. No, <laughs> I think you should do it to the players at least once. Just to irritate the hell out of them. <laughs> that character is not going to survive the session. Mm, not if they can kill it. <laughs> oh, man. There is actually a mascot playbook we used in Fellowship. That would be terrible. It's too dangerous to go over there yet. <laughs> Do you want a cameo in our game as the mascot? <laughs> no, I'll just pre-record. It's too dangerous to go over there yet. And you can play it whenever you need to. <laughs> oh, my God. That would be so annoying. It would drive people out of their minds in a tabletop setting. It would be beautiful. But you wanted meta, guys. I think maybe instead of if we want to keep bioluminescence where everything is dark as the man, as they, and maybe maybe it is that. So in the parts of the world where it is too dark, where it becomes too bright is the mist, effectively, and vice versa. Yeah, you could flip it so that the light's the thing that makes it hard to see. That actually makes some sense. So there could be plenty of stuff. There could even be whole lives lived on the light side of things but they're equally mystified by whatever exists in the dark sure you can try it that way and i guess maybe this is part of it because that first group probably decides the actual shape of the world accordingly whether this is well i think i think you've got a pretty clear shape of the world in mind in a strange place which is that a lot of it is not empty but inherently not somewhere you want to hang out Right. There are there are havens. Right. All of these memorable locations, even if even the ones that are dangerous are the are the important parts. It's not a um, it's not like a carpet of civilization. It's a bunch of oases of it. So the village, as we had in the Better Angels game, was surrounded by these tremendous walls and carved into them across the length of it were these strange angelic beings that were just cutting down wheat across the entire length of it. And it seems pretty clear that the wheat was a reference to whoever existed in the village before. So as a warning why you don't right. stray. Sure. And the thing the players decided is that the adults, 
since they were playing children, were not actually of the same entity or species as them. They were golems or some other type of construct that just persisted in taking care of the few living things left or, you know, tried to mirror those roles. It was unclear. We only got three or four sessions in. But I think, yeah, to your point, there are there are probably weirdly different subcultures pocketed throughout the world. And so the other the other thing that's a logical consequence of that is that traveling is going to be hard, which brings us back into a science fiction context in a weird way, because traveling in those in sci-fi systems that are not set on necessarily one world is pretty much always kind of a big deal, right? You could ride the monorail, you know, if you didn't think it was a dragon hell-bent on eating you, but... So I think what you need to do, rather than focus on things that are inherently small and idiosyncratic, you need to put in this world some system of linked locations that has a consistent logic. So, in other words, what was the the core means of travel before things fell apart? Well, just what is a place where things are still kind of solid, right? Or a set of places where things are still kind of solid, where they do know that that's a monorail and not a dragon. You start there. I think since since we've established there are trains of a kind and they follow on tracks, they go through caves and traverse liminal spaces. Yeah, I think let's go with trains as the... The vehicle, the literal vehicle. Okay, sure. I like that. That's fine. So we have a we have a world which is basically just subway tunnels taken out to the nth degree. Right. And there are plenty of the sub I imagine the trains are surface and underground. They're I think part of what makes them terrifying is that for significant lengths in some parts they stay underground. Or that they go above ground if underground's where you're used to being. It could be either. That's the thing. Like you were saying before. I, I think then what we've established is the world is light internally and dark externally or vice versa. And there are probably hubs on both sides, but the other is always terrified of what happens when you go through the tunnel. Sure. Or even, you know, maybe the train, maybe you get on the train, Mm -hmm. right? And the train, you know, chugs along doing its train thing. And then the alarm goes off and the shutters come down over the windows. (laughs) And everybody knows what that means. That means don't go outside right now, even if the train stops. It's light outside. Right. Or conversely, maybe you're rolling along on the train and everything's cool and it's nice and bright. And then suddenly you go underground and again, floodlights turn on and they're all creepy colored. And, you know, I think you want to work with that. I like that idea. I think you can do both. That's the thing. It's going to be it's going to be a matter of what the transition is, what the expectation is. Importantly, is does this all happen on the same train or are they separate cars? My suspicion is, I mean, there's definitely separate cars because it's a train. Sure. I think you mean separate lines. Yeah. And I think there are probably separate lines. I think you start by defining what is on one train line. Okay. What what set of places is on that train line? Is it a hub system? Is it a, you know, is it a ring? Is it a whatever? Right. And they should all be not the same, right, but similar themed. And they should all be some degree. And this part, I think, might matter of light or dark, but all on the same side of that d- divide. Do you, do you know who the mysterious stranger is in this is? It's the conductor. Yes. Of the, the system. Right. Do not fool with the conductor. Just period. I think the conductors are very important to your system here. They, they make the trains go. They're why the trains still go, despite right. not making any sense. You know, there's no... There's no obvious source of power for them. Right. I think I don't think people considered as like the general citizens of this world 
have any control at all over the trains. The trains stop or they don't. <laughs> Incidentally, does the conductor look like Tom Hanks from the Polar Express? No, it looks like George Carlin. <laughs> yeah. It could look like anything, actually. I think that's, that, you know, maybe you want to play up the mystery of the, of the, of the trains. And the conductor, okay, uh, looks like your traditional hooded figure instead. Sure. And there's a bunch of them. Oh, goodness. Right. And occasionally you might catch a glimpse of what's under, but they intentionally obscure themselves. Right. Or sometimes a train that looks a little different shows up and George Carlin gets out and he's like, hey, I'm going to this place. And you're like, we've never heard of that place. The trains don't usually go there. And he's like, I know you want to come. Which is an invitation to kind of a Brigadoon-like scenario. Anything could happen at that point. <laughs> I think the trains run on their own timetable. Mm-hmm. There, there are probably some that are consistent, but I think they just do what they want. But finding a timetable for trains could be a whole investigative journey itself. Exactly. So your characters might start in a region where there's, pick a number, let's say five. All right. Five known you know, places that the trains stop pretty regularly with some consistency. Mm-hmm. All right. There's the castle and the library and the village and the forest and burning knife mountain. Those are the four. Those are the five places the trains go. You've got to have one ominous place. There, there's going to be at least one where like, OK, yeah, you can go there. But like, are you sure you want to do that? Because <laughs> eventually the answer will be yes. Right. I mean, the graveyard is full of a bunch of self-immolating. Right. Maybe there's a graveyard. Yeah. You could go to the graveyard, but. If there's not a funeral going on, that's not a good idea. <laughs> no, the self-immolating scarecrows will run you out. Any number of terrible things might happen. Sure, exactly. And I think what that's what you do is you establish that okay, these are the these are the places you you, you guys have heard of, and probably you develop you know a very simple system like it goes from three to negative three of light and dark levels. Okay, right. and like in a, in a level three light area, it's very light. Everything's whatever light turns out to mean. Not necessarily good stuff, mind you, but it's very light. Okay, in a three in a negative three area, it's very dark. I think then, because inevitably players will want to have a mix of folks who are acclimated to one or the other. That's how players work. Sure. I've heard a lot of interesting arguments back and forth about limiting player choice to encourage creativity, but also interest in how things evolve in gameplay. Well, what happens depending on how you do it is that sometimes you get a really strong thematic grouping as a result. Sometimes. Sometimes you somebody just gets aggravated with you. And everyone wants to be the exception. I listened to one show where a guy basically wanted to run for Fortress the Game, and the first question he heard was, can I be an elf? <laughs> he just, you could hear the face. In Dwarf Fortress? Oh, no, you really can't. No, el- elves are real bad news in Dwarf Fortress. You shouldn't want to be an, an elf in a Dwarf Fortress setting. Right, that, that, was, that was his gut impulse, you know, after taking his face off the desk. I do feel like in a, in a setting like this, it would be important to establish that, at least in the beginning of the game, where you start from, right? some things like the light, some things like the dark, and that's where they are at the start. Right. Well, I, and, and, you know, so, you know, take the three to negative three idea, which you don't have to roll with forever, but, like, you can go anywhere within two of wherever you're from. Yeah. Without problems. I wonder if that's a permit thing. It could be a permitting thing. Yes. Maybe the conductors screen people. You know, maybe that's why they've got the alarms. They might have to go through the light, but that's okay. You can ride the train that goes through the light, but they won't let you on the one that stops right, there. Because you're, you're permitted through negative two or positive two or whatever. Right. Yep. Or getting train permissions then becomes a thing that the players might have to do. It's obviously it's what's your valence. Sure. However you want to look at it. I don't really, you know, have a stake, have a dog in this fight, but like, I think you got to do something like that where, yeah, okay. So we got these five places that we know we can go, but what about the others? You know, 
this this inadvertently because this is the way my mind works. Uh, Dave and I were trying to come up with a system where the actual game, or you play basically each of the quantum deciders in a quantum computer, and is judging you accordingly. No, that seems terrible. <laughs> it was because you're going to get punished for bad decisions. Yeah, it seems terrible. That does. That seems like not a fun way to spend an afternoon. No, I, uh, that was one of the things. Like we were thinking, well, how does the engine work? And the result was, oh, as you make it, it's inevitably a death spiral. Yeah, because the quantum system decides against you. But it just made me think of like you know people's interpretations of what it means to be valenced at a certain level, and that probably varies by region accordingly. But yeah, I could see the recluse library not letting you in past a certain right. Or, you know, the lighthouse doesn't let you in unless you can tolerate the lighthouse. <laughs> yeah. And people might think that's just a, the guard keeper doesn't let you in, but there might be some more metaphysical barrier that you just can't get in. Right. I think that's where you can be fluid and play it by the game or the system. Yeah. I think you're going to be able to operate just fine within a system where you don't ever actually leave that starting cluster. And you can run an entire game there and it'd be fine. Sure. Right. And then you can instead try to run a game where, okay, well... uh Oh shoot! The the nobody's heard of this train. All aboard <laughs> is where is where you start. Episode one is the conductor invites you to know it's never where. Right, and you know maybe that doesn't work out so good, or maybe it does. Right, it, it's a one way ticket type of situation where you get there and then you have to get back. Right. Yeah. So I think you've you've got some versatility. So we got a, we got this subway theme going on, right? And th- because it's a subway theme, I think it's important to mention that you could try to walk the train lines. I imagine you probably have some population that wants to just live around or near the tracks, train hopping. Yeah, and there may well be, you know, uh, underground people, as it were, who do not live in any of these clusters. Sure. And they do their own thing somewhere way off off of the train lines. But that's not something you need to worry about now until you have an idea for what to do with it. I just want to point out it might exist. I think think kind of... Adding a little touch of Miyazaki in here, everything comes from the train line. So, for instance, goods come off of the train lines that don't exist here from somewhere else. Right. So the trains are the, the they are the actual trade route too, even if the things inside a car shouldn't fit in the car. I think the trains just show up, unload whatever cargo they have, load whatever people they they're taking, and they just go. And again, they don't. The trains don't ask any questions of anybody. They don't ask permission. They just show up. Yeah. You could easily start a game where they stop, and that's the beginning of the game. There are no more trains. There have been no trains for two weeks. Yeah. We are out of coal. Mm -hmm. Now what? (laughs) Time to go to Burning Knife Mountain. Right. Well, there's coal (laughs) at Burning Knife Mountain, and we know it's down that train line. A train could very well go through the mountain, too. Yeah. there Because I think part of the joy of the mist was as a mechanism where you could make anything happen if it fell right. Right. I think... I think if you get off a train in transition, anything can happen, fairly literally. Yeah, it's a liminal space. Right. It, it's an opportunity where you can take some of the more grounded premises and tweak them for an episode or a session. And I think that's part of perhaps where you get this diversity of, let's call them narrative archetypes or tropes, where one region, there are no, quote-unquote, recluses or vampires or where people. No, I think there might always be one. That's the thing. You mean in each region? Yeah, kind of, kind of along the Dark Lord, along the lines of the Dark Lord concept from Ravenloft. But you know, and maybe it doesn't have to be just one, and so on and so forth. But like, I think one way or another, somebody is always the defining uh, occupant of the region. So this is before Stranger Things came out. 
But we were joking as we were attending the Academy World game of doing kind of an AU run before like the capstone session. Mm-hmm. And as much as we don't like monster arts, we were working at similar games where you can play characters in more relationship oriented challenge and investigation than, you know, right. monster killing. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun to take all of this and do a small town Americana version instead? We're the weird monstrous, like Welk vampire professor of the faculty is just the head of the Academy on the Hill. He's just a guy. <laughs> yeah. He's just the, the creepy guy who runs the Academy on the Hill. Your dad is the sheriff, you know, all those other things. But yeah, I don't think it necessarily even has to be true that every space is defined by something that is necessarily threatening or even important. I just think there's always some kind of anchor to the space. So I think it's, it's possible that the, whatever the weird recluses do is ties. The trains are entirely separate. Yes. Or it's possible that the trains show up because the recluses have established themselves somewhere. Sure. They could be a beachhead for them. Right. But the players will not necessarily know what that deal is, not least because, again, and this is very important, the conductors don't talk about it. Well, and I think to to your point, the recluses, if they've got a system, if the recluses are tied to the trains, the system works. The fewer people involved in mucking it that aren't trained, you know, trained. That aren't trained. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Right. The fewer people who mess with whatever the space's controller, the better, from the perspective of virtually all of them. I think, too, then, there's probably some taboo against making things too bright or dark beyond the way they are. I don't know. That might be a regional thing. I I think it probably is, and I think it's definitely a thing that happens some places. Sure. Like in in the core cluster example, right, there's probably at least one place where everybody who is staying there thinks that what's going on is fine. And so the taboo is don't mess with it, right? Right. You you could have, for instance, the the forest, since it is largely overgrown in all likelihood by the center, sure. be a place for people who can tolerate some light, but not mm-hmm. too much. So that becomes kind of meeting ground for... Right. You, you could have a middle place where most people could be. You could have all kinds of things. Burning Knife Mountain pretty obviously just has one vampire living somewhere in a cave on it doing you know weird vampire stuff. You just want Frostfang sibling. I don't necessarily want that, but I wouldn't object to it. <laughs> it's a, it's named Burning Knife Mountain, dude. There's somebody living there who is not a good person to disturb. That That's very clear just from the name. When uh, Dave was trying to adapt, a, I think, a Wraith-like engine or a Faith-like mm-hmm. engine to do a Final Fantasy-style game, he showed Pablo and I a map one day. And he, off in the corner, there was the Plane of Shattered Swords. Right, And I looked at that, and Pablo looked at me, and I said, right, so that's ruled by the edgelord. Right. And Dave went, no, and we went... (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) That's ruled by the edgelord. It really might be, Dave. It might not be what you had in mind, but it looks pretty clear to us. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever hangs out on Burning Knife Mountain is not good news, all right? Burning Knife Mountain, from a slightly less literal interpretation, might be a spaceship, only most people don't have the mental wherewithal to realize it as such. You know, be terrible. Let's go with that premise for a moment is the fuselage is just perpetually burning through the mountain. Exactly. I'm thinking of like rocket launch towers at Cape Canaveral. That looks like a burning knife with a certain set of spectacles on. Sure, And maybe stuff is accumulated over it over the years. Right. And maybe burning knife mountain, God help us, is a light two is a light three area where they keep launching rockets into even brighter areas because they're crazy. 
Yeah, okay, they're, they're a mad cultist in Burning Knife Mountain. Right. Burning Knife Mountain can't possibly be a nice place with that name, okay? I'm sorry, it's just true. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give you the vampire in Burning Knife Mountain. He's tied to the archaeological cult. Okay. Who else is going to fetishize ancient things from the past? Well, I mean, you know, maybe... There are other people, but sure, if you want to keep your archaeology cult, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the archaeology cultists probably go there and they're like, oh, great master of Burning Knife Mountain, teach us your secrets. And he's like, okay, so I'm going to need you to bring me this, 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 and this. Builds a rocket, launches the rocket, tells them nothing. Like, he's that asshole. <laughs> he is. He's the guy that Space Butler serves. Yeah, that, that that's very possible. That, that actually would make a lot of sense. But, you know, the point is Burning Knife Mountain, it, it just can't be a safe location with that name. It's not possible. No, I, I appreciated that in our first game, Tut Tut heard the name of that and really told them no. Right. Whereas the fields of the hidden knight could be bad, could be good. You don't really know by just from the name. You clearly decided it's bad in your notes here, but not I, that bad. An old and forgotten graveyard with flowers that only bloom when there's a little new light. That's, that's just pretty. Uh-huh. And then the corn dollies, you know. Right. It's, it's definitely not a, a graveyard full of glowing flowers. I mean, that, that's not terrible. Right. I don't want to and, hang out there. And sentient corn dollies that burn you to death. Yeah, right. It seems like a good place to hang out. Obviously, they're guarding something and don't want anyone there. The peace of the restful dead. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Again, it, it can't actually be a very nice place. So I think what you do at that point, right, um, you define your starting area, and not even just your starting area, you define sort of the... Um, the zones, let's call them, or the regions. No, you define a place that's reliable. Sure. Okay, and then you use that place that's reliable to figure out how generally things work. Okay, and then as you try to run other games, as, as the players from it, during those other games go out to other places, or even insist in starting on them, you can start worrying about exceptions. What you're doing is finding a baseline. Right, you're establishing the things that are... The, the routine. Because any place that's a relatively stable system within this kind of, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think ecology is quite right, but ecology, okay, is stable for a reason. And it's going to be because it works given the ecology. Ecology is a weird one because you've got to wonder about the kind of things they would grow. Obviously, in a dark, primarily, you're looking at fungal stuff and slimes and molds and sightless things. Right. Or if, if, if the forest exists, you go get night acorns for the forest. Who knows? For, you know, or from the forest, rather. But who knows? So you, you, you beg the forest for your detour acorns. Right. Or you, you know, go hunt in the forest and hope that the, I don't even know, the boars don't kill you. We, I might actually borrow a page from the, uh, the, Teller, the Telluran game with some of the horrors Dave tossed us in the Feywild there. Oh, yeah, go nuts. That'd be fun. Yeah, the forest is obviously where things like invisible gnomes and whatnot. I'm sure the forest is fine. But it's like you you could go David the gnome style there if you wanted. You Well, that's the thing, though. At that point, it's not the forest. It's the gnomes' forest, right? So I think you have to be also pretty careful about your nomenclature with things. Sure. But that does leave you with room to surprise the players if they arrive somewhere where they don't know what it is already. I think it's... The edge of the forest is one thing. The heart of it might be another. There's probably some serious stuff at the heart of, one way or another, pretty much any of these regions, like I was saying before. Because otherwise, how are they there? Right. It's the peripheries, I think, are the, the peripheries in the middle zones that are probably the safest on any of these, as long as you don't dig too deep. Probably depends on scale. Sure. Probably depends on scale. Well, like, even the village, which is small scale, on surface is essentially benign. Sure. But don't mess with... You know, Father Waitley or whatever. Effectively, yeah. Right. 
because Father Waitley inside the village is going to be able to tell pretty much everybody that you got to go. Mm-hmm. He might not be that dangerous himself, but he's in charge in the village. Right. That's that's the danger of the village is they will easily turn one way or another regarding you. Yep, because they're a village. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're not just a village. Maybe they're the farming village or the fishing village or, you know, you could you can get more or less metaphysical. And I think you probably should. The further the further toward extremes of light and dark you get. Right, because all the main strictures have broken down when you're at the terminal spaces. Things start to get different out there where it's really bright or really dark. Yeah. Yeah. Like Alaska. Right. Like the village is probably a zero on my proposed seven point scale. Even I was partially joking, but just the you get to the point where suddenly all the produce in the in the areas that are very bright is massive. And you're walking through, you know, story tall pumpkins and whatnot. Right. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Where it's weird, it's not hostile, it's just strange. What's going on here? Yeah. But I think probably stuff closer to the center is more normal. Yeah. Or at least more consistent, if not normal. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, You don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.